you can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning again. My name is Peter. I'm also one of the priests here. It's good to be with you. Even if you have not spent much time at church or reading the Bible or not so familiar with Scripture, chances are you've heard of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, the miracle known as the feeding of the 5,000. It's among the most famous of Jesus' miracles. It's the only one of Jesus' miracles, not counting the resurrection and all that, that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. The version we just heard read from John 6 sketches out the story in well-known broad strokes. Big hungry crowd, a few loaves and fishes, bumbling disciples, full stomachs, overflowing baskets, and scene like roll credits. However, in addition to these broad strokes, these Cole's notes, John, the one recording the life of Jesus for us, highlights several key details. Details that we might miss with our familiarity with the story. Key details that add depth and meaning to this miraculous work, both in its original context and for us in 21st century Austin today. This morning, I'd like to highlight a few of these details for us that we might better understand, better grasp the truths revealed in this familiar but transformative story. Transformative because when we fully grasp the truths of the one to whom this story points. Our lives are changed, transformed by the compassion, the generosity, the power of Jesus. I want to encourage you this morning to have the reading from John 6 in front of you. That will help you as we highlight some of the details here. Before we jump in, let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, we thank you for the way that your spirit inspired John in the writing of these words that caused him to recall accurately, record accurately for us this story. In particular, we thank you for the details. And we pray now that the, by that same spirit, you would enliven our hearts and our minds to see you, Jesus, clearly and rightly, and to follow you in the ways that we should go. We pray this in your strong name. Amen. I take real pride in my economy as a storyteller. When I tell a story, I like to think, there is precision. There's no extraneous information. Other people, you know the kind, they'll tell stories with all this inconsequential detail, adding atmosphere or life to the story. Not so with me. I get you in, I get you out, we keep it moving. If I refer to a man with a trench coat early on, you can bet he will be significant later on. It's like Chekhov's gun. You know, the famous Russian playwright Anton Chekhov said, if a gun appears in the first act of a play, it had better go off by the third. That's right, I'm the Anton Chekhov of small talk storytelling. (laughs) Turns out I'm right to take such pride in my storytelling style. Turns out it's biblical. In the latter part of the 20th century, a number of biblical scholars, many of them Jewish, Israeli scholars, used contemporary literary criticism to make sense of biblical style in poetics and storytelling. And they argued, among other things, that biblical narrative is succinct. That is, it avoids extraneous detail. It's streamlined. And while their observations were primarily about Hebrew scripture, they cast light for us on the reading of the Gospels too. 
And because the biblical writers were succinct, the details that they include, that they took time to note, carry meaning. They aren't just like throwing elements in willy-nilly. They are with care, including specific information. That's something to, to keep in mind in your own Bible reading, the details that stick out like, why was this included? It's something to be asking of the text. And it informs our reading of the passage today. And I want to roughly group the details in John 6 that we'll focus on around three headings. And those are geography, testing, and timing. Geography, testing, and timing. So, so first, geography. Location, 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 right? The physical location of this miracle. In the opening verses, John, John points out that these events take place on what he describes as the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. I just noticed the detail. There are a bunch of people back there who look like they're waiting for seats. Maybe they can't grab seats. I think that there are more chairs available in this closet. There are tons more space over here. I could be totally wrong. I might be misreading the details. But if you're there standing and you'd like to sit down, come on over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee over here. <laughs> So, far side of the Sea of Galilee, opposite side. That is, in the northeast corner, the region of Galilee itself. The previous chapter, John 5, took place in Jerusalem, but here the, the narrative moves out into what we might call is the hinterland. Like, away from the center. Everyone's looking at the people who are finding their seats. It's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> but the story here is focused away from the center of attention, the center of power. It is in what we might call flyover country. These are, of course, flyover Hebrews then, the crowd around Jesus. And it's these kind of people, overlooked, unprovided for, who are the recipients of Jesus' compassion, his generosity here. It's their need that prompts Jesus' response, their hunger that he sees. It's, their, it's them who are witness to this remarkable display. And I think there's probably something for us in that. But I also want to emphasize and point out that this is not the only meal that Jesus provides on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in the Gospel of John. No, in John 21, following his death and resurrection, the disciples return to their work of fishing in the, the Sea of Galilee. And just like here in John 6, they are empty-handed. They work all night. They catch nothing until, that is, Jesus appears resurrected and with some fishing advice, right? Put your nets on the other side. And the disciples, not recognizing him, do so. And they find themselves swamped by his abundant provision. And in that abundance, they recognize the Lord. This is the one who provides for us. It's him. They come to the shore, and Jesus, there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee again, serves them bread and fish the same ingredients we find here. What is going on? What's with the connection? It would seem that John, in the telling of this story, desires for us, his readers, to connect these two episodes and to see the feeding of the 5,000 here in continuity with Jesus' of his feeding of his disciples then, after his resurrection, doing the same kind of work through his earthly life and beyond. That is, we can say that Jesus' work is the work of generous provision, not merely as a one-off event to meet the needs of a particular group of people, 
but it is a fundamental part of his life and mission. Jesus comes to provide. In both John 21 and John 6, Jesus is in fact depicted as the host. Notice it in verse 11 there in our reading. Jesus is described as distributing the bread and the fish. He alone, it seems to suggest. Physically, that makes absolutely no sense. There are more than 5,000 people here. They're not all in a line, like single file, waiting for Jesus to give them bread. But John's point is that however the mechanics of it worked out in the handing out of the, the food, Jesus is the host, just as he welcomes the disciples in John 21. And this idea of host makes sense of another detail, verses 12 and 13, that they gathered up the remainder of the food, right? Like this remarkable miracle, you just generated food from thousands upon thousands from five loaves. Do you really need to make sure you take care of the leftovers, right? It doesn't seem like it. But this was typical behavior of Jewish hosts, understood to demonstrate care, prudence around food, not letting it go waste. John is saying Jesus is hosting a feast. This is who he is, providing, making available this remarkable abundance. And how much is gathered up? Another detail, 12 baskets. In the word 12 baskets full there, it means like to the extent of their capacity. Right? Full to the brim. Twelve full baskets. Including this detail, John wants us, his readers, his hearers, to recognize the significance of the number twelve. Twelve disciples, twelve tribes of Israel, twelve baskets full. More than just the miracle for this crowd, John desires you and I to see that in Jesus there is enough for all the people of God desires us to see that in Jesus, the needs, the real needs of the people of God are met and satisfied here in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, but also John 21, after the resurrection, up into the present moment. In Jesus, John is saying, your needs, my needs, all of the needs of the church, of the people of God are well in hand. That is, we inhabit this different kind of economy in the world around us. In a recent piece in The Atlantic on homelessness in America, and specifically homelessness in California, the, the journalist Jerusalem Desmas, she makes the point that the lack of affordable housing, the root cause of it, or the root cause of homelessness, is the lack of affordable housing. And she points to, in making this point, the, the, the children's game musical chairs. She says that even a game among the fastest and most aggressive musical chair players, the best musical chair players, the whole game means someone ends up without a chair. It's simply a fact of the structure of the game, the scarcity of resources. There is not enough to go around. That is the economy of the world around us. Apart from Christ, scarcity, there is not enough. But John is saying here, in Jesus Christ, there is no such lack, there is no such scarcity in the kingdom of Jesus. For the people of God, there is in Jesus always and ever enough. He is sufficient and able to provide. Now, in, in making this claim, John is not like making something up, he's not coming up with this novel, unique idea. No, this idea that the physical needs of the people of God will be met generously by God is this fundamental hope seen throughout the Old Testament. 
In recalling these events, John may very well had a passage like Isaiah 25, verse 6 in mind, which says, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. That is what John sees Jesus doing on the shores of Galilee. The meal, he's saying, is being made ready. In Jesus, the needs of the people of God are abundantly being provided for. In him, there's enough. The end of all, in the end, all of your needs will be satisfied. That's why John can write elsewhere in Revelation. There will be no more sighing, no more hunger, no more tears. There will be, in Jesus, true and full provision. One final detail on geography. In verse 10, there's this little aside about there being plenty of grass for the people, plenty of grass for them to sit down. It's weird, like why is that detail there? At the most basic level, it probably points to it being a comfortable place for the people to sit, like soft green grass for your sensitive tushy or something like that. <laughs> it's also indicative of it being springtime when Passover, the Passover festival took place. But also we can see in this detail that in this moment, in this miracle, the green shoots of new and abundant life are being experienced by the people of God. They are being put on offer by Jesus. And many connect this note to Psalm 23, verse 2, and see here how Jesus sets the crowd down in green pastures, prepares a table for his people, shepherding them in their need, in their lack, to new, abundant, and bountiful life. Okay, so that's geography. The second detail, the second set of details are related to this idea of testing. In commenting on John 6, one biblical scholar notes, Jesus loves to find faith in his disciples. He delights in it. This idea of delight, of Jesus' deep love for faith, perhaps puts a, a different perspective on Jesus' interaction with the disciple Philip in verse 5. When we read that word testing, for many of us, I suspect it has a certain negative quality. And that makes sense. You're like, oh my gosh, SATs or exams, entrance tests. And often in scripture, even elsewhere in John, the word appears with this connotation of entrapment, catching someone in a lie or in a failure of some kind. The religious teachers seek to test and trap Jesus, for example. But testing can also have this more benign quality, right? It can simply mean confirmation without any negative side. You're like testing a tree branch before you hang from it or confirming the lunch appointment you have scheduled with your friend. It would seem that this more benign, perhaps even playful quality is meant by the word testing here. The other day, my kids and I, we, we had dinner together, lunch, we had gotten pizza takeout, and there was a big brown paper bag. And typical dad move, I like blew it up and popped it as loud as I could. Disappointing, it wasn't as loud as I was hoping. It didn't startle them. But then I asked them, knowing that they knew the answer, I asked my kids, why would this breathing in and out of the bag, why would that cause you to hyperventilate? And I was amazed by their articulate explanation of how will you breathe out increasing carbon dioxide into it and that depletes the amount of oxygen and it causes you to hyperventilate. And it was just this simple, playful thing, but I was testing them. Not to trap them, not to shame them or see them fail, but that I could delight in their knowledge. 
And I was like, check out the big brains on Lucy and Emmett. This is amazing. I do wonder if Jesus doesn't ask Philip the question in this same spirit. Lots of people here, right? What are we going to do? I wonder how we'll do it. Can you imagine what we might need to do? In situations that you and I are encountering in our lives, where the need seems so great, so overwhelming, perhaps this is Jesus' posture toward us. And the invitation from the Lord in this question seems to be that we would see such situations in our lives, in the world, in the light of Jesus, in the light of his kingdom, with what we might call as a sanctified, faith-filled imagination. Over the past few months, I've been having this ongoing conversation with my spiritual director as we've talked about different circumstances, situations that are challenging or cause me fear. I'm uncertain about the outcome. And she has encouraged me in asking this question. How is the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord going to be displayed? I wonder how the provision and power of Jesus will be made apparent. That I suspect is something akin to the response of faith that delights the Lord. This is what he is inviting out of Philip, the imagination and expectation of what he might yet do. But let's be honest, that posture is really difficult to maintain in the face of crises that we encounter related to employment or health, financial questions, relationship stuff. In the face of the broken world around us, there are crises and unsolvable problems, it seems. Scarcity and limitation, that is the world in which you and I live. Repeatedly throughout John 6, he emphasizes all these people five times, all this hunger, all this need. And it's easy to beat up on Philip and Andrew for their lack of faith. But all that they're doing is seeing the situation exactly as it is in natural terms, in material terms, at the material level. Five loaves, two fishes, all these people, an ocean of need. It does not add up. And are you and I so different? Is our faith so much stronger? Speaking for myself, it is not. But notice that Jesus does not despise them for the weakness of their faith. Jesus doesn't look upon the disciples' failure to see this, to have this faith-filled imagination. He doesn't say, well, never mind, you missed your chance, we're going to do something really cool. We'll just get Chipotle or something like that. That is not his disposition toward his followers. That is not his disposition towards people. Rather, his, his playful test, his joyful invitation is come and see. And to have our imaginations renewed, revived, our faith kindled by the possibilities of what he has done and might yet do again. Of how even now he is setting a table and that future feast of his kingdom is cascading into the present. May yet be tasted today, experienced now in your life, in my life, in the situations we are facing. Some of you are in the fight of your lives. And Jesus desires, Jesus longs to give you this faith-filled imagination and to meet you abundantly in your place, in your time of need. And that invitation leads us to this third, this final heading on the details of our passage, that is timing. 
John notes that Jesus' miraculous provision for the 5,000 took place when the Jewish festival of Passover was near. This festival marked the deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery into Egypt. We all probably know that. And as such, it was associated with the hope of deliverance, the hope of this new exodus that God might yet do. And Jesus' miracle immediately probably casts our minds to the the gift of manna in the wilderness. And that's there. We'll see that in the coming weeks in John 6. But this connection to Passover invites us to see Jesus himself rather than the bread, the loaves, the fish as what truly satisfies. While the focus is on the crowd, the focus of the crowd is on the loaves and fishes that Jesus provides. It's this connection to Passover that invites us to see Jesus as like the lamb in Exodus 12, who is slain for God's people's provision, slain for their protection. Just as Jesus offers the bread and fish in thanksgiving, literally the word there is Eucharist, breaking this bread, his own body, of course, will be broken and offered up for our provision. It's by that sacrificial death that Jesus becomes the true king, the king that they want to make him here in John 6. In making this connection, I think John is seeking to draw our attention less to the gift, the gift of the abundant bread, and more to the gift giver himself, Jesus himself. And to draw our attention from the merely physical provision that Jesus is able to offer to this richer, fuller bounty he provides at the cross. The assurance that you and I have that Jesus is able to meet our needs, to provide for us, to usher all things toward God's abundance, is not merely in the stories of miracles, in scripture or in our lives, the lives of other people, as faith-building as those things are. The more complete assurance that you and I have is found in the cross, because it is here that Jesus deals with our most pressing problem, our deepest lack, our most profound hunger. You and I were made for more than physical bread. The physical longings we so acutely feel are themselves Foretaste, shadows, pointers toward this deeper, more complete spiritual longing. We were made to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is, for communion and communication with Him. Eternity has been set in our hearts. That is, we have a hunger for the transcendent. You may not believe in God, but the reality of these appetites is undeniable in our lives. And John's conviction, as we have seen, is that in Jesus... God has spoken, has spoken this word of life, this word of communion, of true communication to us. And in Jesus, God has generously provided. So we look to Jesus, we look to his victory on the cross, where he most clearly provides that our faith today, in the situations we're encountering now, might be revived, might be restored, might be built up. And we offer our Eucharist in response to Jesus recalling again how he has provided, how he has supplied what we lacked, how he has met our need. Then you and I are able to meet the crisis of today with confidence, with assurance that he has and will withhold no good thing from us. In your hour of need, in your hour of questioning, In your hour of lack, give thanks to God for the cross. Recall again how Jesus laid down his life for you. Remember that he is your sufficiency, your abundance. With him you lack for nothing. 
So just in closing, where do all these details leave us? I think the details of John 6 guide us toward both an encouragement and an exhortation. The encouragement, as we have seen, is toward faith. Jesus delights in your faith, however small it is, in whatever situation you find yourself in. Trust in his ability to provide and rest in the knowledge that he has provided for your most pressing need. And second, the exhortation is to put that faith into expression, into action. There's one final detail easily overlooked found in verse 9. The loaves the boy has to offer are designated as barley loaves. That's specifically in John. That means almost nothing to you and me, I suspect, but in the context of Jesus' time, barley loaves were the bread of the impoverished. They are the food of the poor. That John specifies these loaves as barley loaves suggests he intends his readers to understand the boy to be someone of little means, unable to offer very much. And what he could offer was of low quality, so little and of such little value that it seems to be totally inconsequential in the context of the need, all these people. And some of us, perhaps, are barley loaf people. And the exhortation, I think, for us is to not despise what it is that we have to offer, to give what little we may have to the Lord and see what he might yet do. Because it's precisely this boy's modest meal that becomes the stuff of the most famous lunch in all of history. In Jesus' hands, these humble loaves and fishes become so much more quantitatively, qualitatively. But let's be honest, many of us are not barley loaf people. We're French bread from Whole Foods kind of people. <laughs> We can imagine, perhaps, showing up to a picnic with sushi rolls from Uchiko or something like that. And from that place, there is the temptation. There's the temptation to think, how much more could God do with our higher quality resources, with the ingredients that we could offer? California rolls for everyone. That is precisely the wrong lesson to take from the feeding of the 5,000. Because Jesus is here shown to need for nothing in order to provide for his people. Rather, I think the exhortation, the lesson is simply this. Do you want your stuff, your abundance to count? Your possessions, your time, your abilities, your very life. And offer them in faith to the Lord, concretely. Offer them to the one who has held nothing back in providing for you to the one who is able to abundantly, exceedingly meet your every need to overflowing, offer them that he will trust and make up for whatever is lacking. Offer it all, knowing that it is the surest way to make something of all that you have received. He will surely receive all that we have and all that we are. And in his compassionate, generous, and capable hands, He'll make something more of it, qualitatively and quantitatively. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.